Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is the legend Michael Wilton from Queensryche. Let's get this. Michael Wilton, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure, man. Been listening to you for quite a long time. Actually, first time that I ever played on a big stage was when somehow, I don't know how, because it was on the Promised Land tour, my high school band won some something and we ended up opening your Atlanta show when I was like 14. So I've been listening to you for quite a while. So it's a pleasure to have you on and let's just get into it. You've been recording with Zeus for a while now. I'm curious, what's, what's it like working with him versus some of the older school producers? Because he's got, uh, you know, he's got a more modern approach than lots. Besides the fact that he's recorded the last three Queensryche albums, yeah. you know, he is very flexible. He's mobile. And I think a lot of producers, engineers, you know, have their studios they have to use and everything. Uh, Zeus can travel with his gear Mm -hmm. and hook into any other studio or hook into any system to make it happen. So the drums were recorded in a house that we had to start from the ground up building, having Casey Grillo play in this huge living room, you know, in this mansion, we wouldn't be able to get such a unique drum sound because we'd be in a studio that, you know, everybody uses. This is completely unique. So I think you know, having the flexibility to set up and record is is really, you know, an asset of Zeus. I feel like that's one of the biggest drawbacks to the old way of doing things is being tied to a location in terms of both budget, but also artistic flexibility. You're stuck in that place. And if you don't like that place or you feel like you've gotten everything you can out of that place... But the producer, you know, he still has to pay for it and keep it going. It leads to, I think, decisions that don't necessarily benefit the music as much as going where it makes the most sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, what Zeus brings to the table is, you know, obviously he wants to make the band as comfortable as possible. You know, you don't want to be in this, you know, hourly rate kind of a situation. Dentist office. Yeah. Where you're on a creative high and improvising, coming up with something new. It's about bringing the the best performances, the best ideas. You know, he pushes us to go beyond anything we've done before sometimes. And besides, he's a really cool guy to hang out with too. He's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually think that that counts for a lot, but I feel like the skill part of it is assumed. Like you're not going to be in the room with uh, a band like you guys or any great band, unless you are awesome at production engineering. One of the biggest differentiators past the skill is how much can you hang out with this person? Can you stand to be around this person for a couple of months on end? Are you cool with getting this guy's input on your music? Is it a good personal chemistry? I think that that matters a lot more than people realize. Sure, it does. And, you know, it's like a lot of ideas come when we're just hanging out at a bar or, you know, or or a restaurant or taking coffee break or anything, ideas float through people's heads, you know, especially, you know, with me, it's like, I hear something and I go, Hey Zeus, 
let's go turn the recording on. I, I got an idea. I want to record it before I forget it because I'm older now, you know, and ideas will come and go. And it's like, I may have a great idea, the riff, right? And if it doesn't get documented, it'll be gone probably in 10 minutes. Gone forever. <laughs> yeah. What do you do when you're home? If it hits you, like, do you have a method for logging riffs or ideas? Whatever is accessible. I learned how to record, sing ideas, whatever on, on the phone, but I still have a, uh, you know, one of those micro cassette recorders. I still have nice. one, one of those around. And then, you know, if I'm lucky enough, then my recording system is accessible, but it's something that I have to hammer into my brain because I don't want to lose that feeling of it, you know, the connection, not just the visual interpretation of it. And that's what's so important, you know, about having a, a little recorder or your phone or whatever to just grab an idea. And a lot of the songs, you know, that I'm a part of that I write, I mean, it's, they, they come from riffs. They come from ideas that are flowing through my brain, streams of consciousness that Obviously, I have to listen and try and remember what's going on there. If I can get to a button on a micro cassette recorder yeah. or figure out this damn iPhone, then at least it's archived and, and I can come back to it. And, and then, then you can judge it, right? You can say, ah, it was cooler when I played it. But now that I've listened to it, I think I'm going to get rid of it. Or it's like, wow, I think this could grow into a, you know, something really cool. So I think it's that point, you know, in, my career, at least, that time is of the essence in capturing the idea. Mm -hmm. The thing about using voice memos or whatever, I feel like, you know, if you're singing a riff, obviously it's not going to be as cool as when you played it. So that's actually, I feel like, a really good test for does the hook in the riff or the melody in the riff or whatever, whatever it is, does the cool thing about that riff translate? Because if it does, you're still going to think it's cool hearing a voice memo back if it doesn't need a great sounding guitar to pull it off. Like just the core essence of it is great. I think voice memos are really killer for that because, you know, great melody is a great melody regardless of the medium. Right. And I think, you know, if you can capture it and put it into one of these iMemo things, it's there. And then when you go listen to it, if it was a guitar riff, maybe it's just a vocal melody. Maybe it's uh, something the bass is going to play. You never know. It's just so new and fresh. You can go back and listen to it and you can take it down a path and hopefully make something of it. I just saw a documentary about James Bond music and Hans Zimmer was on it talking about the the soundtrack for the latest movie, he was talking about how, I guess when he was doing recording or co-writing or working on the Billie Eilish song, he recorded her doing all kinds of different things that maybe or maybe not were going to be used. But the way he referred to it as was gathering ammunition. Like the point wasn't that everything he did with her was going to make it to the final. It wasn't about that. It was just so that he had a, an archive of stuff to work with because you never know what it's going to develop into or where it'll work perfectly. I'm curious about something you said earlier. Um, you said that it's better than having a visual representation. Did you mean like by visual representation, did you mean like sheet music or tabbing it out? No, I think actually 
visually seeing your hands playing it got it okay can give a give a connection mm-hmm. that helps just as well yeah really however you go about documenting it i think the important thing is that you're documenting it yes also you, you got to be organized about it you, know? you got to be <laughs> yes. able to find these documents and you got to be you know be able to you know because what happens now is because you have all these different situations and you have, you know, you have the studio that has ideas. You have your iPhone that has ideas. You got your micro cassette recorder that has ideas. You've got, you know, whatever. So it's like you got to be organized about it because, in fact, you know, I'm I'm guilty of it right now because I know I recorded some acoustic guitar parts on the record function on my iPhone, and I don't know if I used any of that on the album or not, but I, I still have them. But iPhones have so much memory. I've got to go back and just scan and fish on the phone to find those. That's kind of a hassle. It can be. Do you have any methods you've developed for keeping track of things? Because I know exactly what you're talking about. When you're in the seeding process for a big project and you've got ideas spread out over multiple devices spanning months and months and months, a lot of that stuff, if you don't have it directly accessible, you might not even remember that you did it. Yeah. And that happens a lot with me. So I think it's just a matter of when you get something and you want to try it for real and build it, you know, then it gets into your recording software and then you can see if it's going to work or not. Got it. Do you have a computer setup, Pro Tools or whatever? I got Pro Tools just like everybody else. So Kind of essential, I think, these days. Yeah, we started using it a long time ago. And, and I'm, I know there's other great recording software platforms, but this one's just the one that I know. And I don't want to go back to school and try and learn a different software. Yeah, no, no point. I mean, they all basically do the same thing. I think it really comes down to which one do you know? Which one are you comfortable with? Which one is the least of a pain in the ass, basically, that you can work the quickest in or most efficiently? Yeah. On the road, sometimes I'll have an idea and I've got my laptop and the interface creates some latency and that drives me crazy. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you're hearing the pick hit the string and it's a millisecond later being recorded. And it's like, oh, you know, it just ruins the mood. Sometimes, you know, technology is cumbersome. But when it works, it's great. Yeah, nothing's perfect if it's made by humans. I feel like any advancement in technology is going to come with the bad side of it. It's so cool that we can record anywhere and have something like Pro Tools anywhere. But latency and things like that just does does kind of suck. And it, I think it does make it harder to get into you know, the right feel when you're tracking something. And, you know, sometimes if you got a little combo amp and you got your little micro cassette recorder, it's like, sometimes that's the best way. (laughs) I know what you're saying because I know several players who the latency on amp sims, for instance, the reason they don't like amp sims, I, I like them just fine. But I know certain players who the reason they don't isn't because of how they sound. It's because of how they feel. And it's the latency thing. That's what trips them up. It's not, the way they sound. Exactly. Yeah. And if your computer isn't powerful enough, that's a big problem. And some of the amp simulators, you know, use a lot of processing power. So that's a pain as well. I mean, there's so many of them out there, but if you can get one that doesn't eat up all your uh, processing power that you can record with, but the latency is acceptable. That's what you got to go for. Yeah. Super important. When did you first start 
recording on your own? I mean, this was back in my 20s, you know, I had a, a little Tascam four track cassette recorder. Mm-hmm. I was writing uh, songs for Operation Mindcrime on that. Nice. <laughs> and it's like some killer riffs came out of that. That's kind of archaic technology now. So, but at the time, I thought it was really cool. It was really cool. Yeah. You know, and then you can, uh, um, you can bounce tracks so that you have more. You double them. <laughs> I figured out how to do that until they came out with eight track cassettes. And then I think uh, some of the uh, the earlier albums, you know, we were using that. I think it was a Tascam eight track cassette player. So, do you think that because you were doing that early on, did part of the layered approach um, in your arrangements? Did part of it come from having the ability to? record yourself and develop ideas on your own outside the studio. Cause I know that before home recording was as widespread as it is now, I think for lots of musicians, the only time they ever recorded ever was in the studio on the clock with the producer. They didn't, they didn't work at home on multi-tracks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you get to a point where, you know, you're so rehearsed with the songs that, you can do that. You can just go into the studio and lay it down. But I think, you know, when, when bands are writing songs together and, and kind of doing like a pre-production and, you know, getting the basis of what they, they want to record, you know, obviously you got to be organized enough that you're not wasting time in the studio because it's expensive. So I think, you know, just a lot of pre-production and you know rehearsals is is necessary you know you got to do that it is a colossal waste of money to go in unprepared but then on the other hand i saw that for this record you wrote in the studio so i'm curious what your experience with that is like like do you prefer it would you rather work on your own and then meet up with everyone once some stuff is ready. Like how does that process work for you? Well, I mean the, the writing stage on this album, like you said, uh, you know, we made a a concerted effort to, to make it, it was all improvised and fresh material, not regurgitated old songs. So, um, you know, we just basically had think tank sessions where we, everybody would fly in and we'd meet and we'd just jam and work on ideas. And we did that, you know, for this was, and this was like right after, you know, it was deemed uh, safe to fly out of the pandemic. So this was like in January of 2021. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we didn't want to do the uh, emailing of complete song ideas and then having to use your pre-production to go through all that, you know, and then it's just a, a different animal. And then with, with the way we did it on this album, it was kind of, you know, instantaneous because songs were built from, you know, a guitar riff and everybody was there. You know, we had an electronic drum kit set up. Todd was in there, you know, getting vocal ideas. Eddie was getting bass parts and Casey Grillo was, you know, jamming to riffs and then they would just build. And the beauty of that is it's, you can get so much done because you build it to a certain uh, point where, you know, everybody's like needs a break from it and you just go on to the next idea and go on to the next idea. So, you know, we, we do think session, these sessions uh, for, I think, you know, four or five days and then everybody would have to fly home. 
And we'd get like three to five songs done in a day, not completed. Yeah. What do you mean by done? I guess I'm wondering. I think, you know, as they gradually get built and ideas for like melodic uh, structure solos where solos will go, if Todd has a, a melody, an idea, and something he wants to write about, you know, it just it just gradually grows. And then when we get to the point where, you know, we, we had a lot of ideas and we got to the point where you know, we're like 20, 22 ideas, right? There were four, four think tank sessions where we all flew in together. And then Zeus, you know, basically said, guys, you know, I know we got a lot of momentum. I know the creativity is flowing through you guys and it's, it's great, but you got to concentrate on 11 or 12 songs. And that's where we kind of went into this uh, pre-production. And, we, and, okay. and then we just focused on those 12 songs. We microscoped them, you know, made sure that we had uh, a good variety of songs. Um, made sure not every song was in the same key, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you know, we got that ready. And then, you know, we booked uh, a mansion for uh, the drums to be recorded. And that was in January of 2022. And Casey Grillo, I mean, the drums on here are, are amazing and he did an amazing job and they're very unique sounding, you know, because of the room, it was, you know, a giant room big, you know, asymmetric walls and dome ceiling and, and the perfect place. I think the fact that we we did so much, you know, we had a separate writing session and a separate pre-production that when we went into recording, it just, everything flowed so well. That makes sense. It seems to me like you that really gives you enough time to know which ones you're feeling in the first place. Like, okay, I'm sure that you didn't feel as strongly about every single one out of the 22. Obviously you picked the ones you wanted to focus on. So I feel like sometimes in the moment, maybe it's possible to be too close to it because you just made it. So of course that's the thing you're feeling in the moment and you want to run with it. But I feel like distance and time helps uh, clarify which are the strongest ideas. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of what goes in is, you know, when we can't come to a conclusion on a song, that's great that we have Zeus uh, in there and he can be kind of the, the, the tiebreaker. <laughs> like if we can't agree how we're going to end the song, for example, you know, is it going to be a big ending or is it going to be abrupt or is it going to go into another song? You know, it's like we have to, you know, a lot for that. That way, you know, it's when we do record the album, when Zeus mixes it, you know, he has an idea, you know, that, okay. You know, this song was built to go into another song or this song was built to stop and to go into something, you know, with a lot of impact. So all of that is done in the pre-production. That's really, you know, you get all that information, you know, it's loosely organized, but it's there. Organized enough. Yeah. Because, you know, lots of gems happen when you're recording, lots of improvised things happen and you find a different way to do a drum pattern or something. I don't know. For the most part, that's kind of, you know, the way that this album was done. Just out of curiosity, back to the Zeus thing, I'm actually curious, like overall, because 16 albums, worked with a ton of producers in a bunch of different situations through many evolutions of technology, you know, with different labels, like just you've seen it all basically. At this point, if you were giving advice to a young producer who wanted to work with 
bigger bands. What would you tell them to focus on? From your perspective, as someone who hires the producer as a, you know, as a client, what are you looking for in a producer? Well, I think it's really important that the producer know the, the strengths of the individuals in the band. But I think the main thing is the core strength idea is to, to have the songs written by the band, not one guy. It just ha- makes such a bigger impact when everybody is vibing on the same song and their ideas, you know, have made the song what it is. And the producer really needs to find where the strengths are, but to have it written by the band. I mean, that's just good leadership, I think, is figuring out what everybody's strengths and how they really shine, basically helping the team utilize that the best way possible. Uh, like, I actually, I think that that's a great thought, actually, that producer needs to be a great leader because like you just said for instance with things like not sure how to end a song or whatever the issue might be you guys look to Zeus for a tiebreaker for the overall not it's still your songs but you're kind of trusting him as like to land that plane I'm not really worried about that with I guess with him in the cockpit which uh is a lot of trust Right. You know, and every band's guilty of this, what we called getting married to the demo. Oh yeah. Demoitis. Yeah. They can't think of it any other way than what the way that it was created. And that's another great attribute that Zeus has. He, he knows he can say, well, why don't we take it this direction? Or why don't we change key here? Or why don't we drop the guitar out? You know, or, you know, whatever. He has a lot of great ideas and great creative input as well. Have you always been cool with a producer that has those types of suggestions for altering the music or has your stance on that changed? Um, I'm asking because some people have always been cool with it. Some people have never been cool with it. And some people were, you know, not cool with it once upon a time, but then after working with several producers or making several records, they've uh, relaxed on it a bit. I'm curious, uh, what your journey with that has been. Yeah. I mean, we were always open for ideas, you know, no limitation in that aspect. I figured that's what you were going to say. Yeah. And sometimes the producer has a great idea. Sometimes it's, it's very small. Sometimes it could be a whole part of the song. So it's something that you investigate and you see if it works, if it works, it's great. If it doesn't, you just keep fishing. Yeah. I think it's great to have, you know, a producer and not just like an, an engineer that turns knobs. I feel like there's only so far that we can take something ourselves without having like the somewhat impartial third party, because we are going to always have certain biases towards, uh, towards our own stuff. Like it's hard to be impartial. I think, I think that even for open-minded musicians with really good chemistry, it's still going to be hard sometimes to actually be impartial and actually always do what's best for the song. Um, it's, it's just tough to do. And that's something that Queensryche has always focused on is that the song dictates what it needs. Mm-hmm. It's not about overplaying or flashy, you know, this and that it's, it's about what the song needs and, you know, Queensryche's, uh, music it's a, has a lot of melody in it and i think uh you know in that aspect it's you know some bands want to just play fast or you know whatever 
or you now for us, it doesn't matter. It's, it's what the idea wants and you just interpret what it wants and you, you build it. I've always noticed that about your songs. I always thought that it was cool that you can tell that the band could play super fast at all times if you wanted to, but it's never, doesn't feel like it's ever been about that. It feels like it's always just been about the best songs possible, which, uh, I feel like is not always, I guess, not always what the overall momentum can be in heavier music. Sometimes I feel like the trends will go towards being overly flashy. Sometimes the trends will be towards being song oriented, but I feel like lots of times there will be a ton of external pressure to put style over substance, I guess. And I feel like uh, you guys have always put substance over anything, which I've always thought is cool. Yeah, we've never really, you know, been affected by trends. And it's more of just, you know, believing in, you know, the talents that we have and just making our, our music what it is. I mean, I think the beauty of this band throughout the years is everybody's had diverse backgrounds in music. And for some cosmic reason, it just kind of works as a band together and it comes up with this music. So, but yeah, you can get a lot of pop music maybe that you know where it's cookie cutter formulas you know it's like the same song over and over and over again by different artists and they do that you know because they they think that's the magic bullet right and that's the one that's going to give them the big hit but i think we're not about the, the flash in the pan we're just about just building our careers and you know so we stay away from that trendy stuff it's interesting with heavy music especially heavy music because authenticity matters so much you can like smell it when a band is doing something that's not genuine um and changing their music in hopes of uh monetizing it more um like you can smell it in the music what i think is interesting about that is that there's a lot of uh super successful bands where they do have traditional song structures with choruses and you know all that stuff and it works because it's genuine so i feel like the authenticity part is that's what really matters at the end of the day yeah and that's you know the end result is we want our music to connect with our fans and you know and you're right they can smell something when it's not right and um so, I mean, it's, I think the, the, you know, we've built the music over the years and, and we've just put trust in our, our way of uh, writing. And, you know, that's why uh, we still do it today because people keep wanting more and more. <laughs> Is that something you had to develop in yourself? Because I think that's a big deal, actually, because I think a lot of people don't trust their own tastes and that's is something that comes up a lot is hear people asking, how do I develop my own style? How do I develop my own sound either as a guitar player or a producer? And my thoughts are always, well, you got to develop your taste. And once you develop your taste, you have to trust your taste. And if you don't trust your taste and you don't trust your musical personality, then that's the problem. But I think that that's a lot harder for people to, I guess, wrap their heads around than getting good at a skill. But really that's, having that trust in your own ideas and in the ideas of the people you work with, it's not by default with most people. Like people have to develop into that. I think the people, most people's first instinct is to not trust their own ideas. So I'm wondering, did you always just naturally have that? Or is this something that had to develop over time? Like had a little bit of success and then we're 
got a little bit more confidence and then a little bit more success, a little bit more confidence? Or did you always just know from early on that the shit worked? I don't know if we knew. I think it was part of, I guess, in the formulative years, just every, all our influences as you discover when you're a young kid, different musics you like and different guitar players and different bands and everything, you know, your, your brain is just a sponge, right? And it's just like, I think, you know, your, your style, it gets molded, right? And as long as you're perceptive to, you know, your, your influences, what happens, how I describe it is all these influences are like in your brain and your brain is a blender and you push the liquefy button and then what comes out that's that's you that's a good way to put it actually you know um i went to berkeley for a little while i ended up dropping out and one of the reasons that i didn't want to keep going was because i honestly hated the music that we were having to learn and i didn't want that infecting me like because i felt like anything you learn is going to come out somehow like it becomes a part of you. So, I mean, I'm all for expanding your knowledge and all for learning. I mean, I run two educational platforms, but I feel like it is important to be clear about what you love, what you don't love, what music you're passionate about, what you hate, um, because anything you learn is going to come through you or even listen to a lot is going to come out in some way, shape or form. Yeah. And I think you can be a bit guilty of that, you know, sounding so much like a, another artist because that's all you listen to growing up. But, yeah, totally. you know, I think, you know, I went to the Cornish Institute of Allied Arts in Seattle and I was opened up to all kinds of music. I was playing gamelan music. I was watching these jazz virtuoso piano players. You know, I was learning uh, classical guitar from guys that have spent summers on the beaches of Spain. It was uh, a very eye-opening, you know, experience when, you know, you're 17, 18 years old, right? The more that I expanded my listening, I think, you know, obviously my tastes, you know, expanded as well. And my, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, I don't think it directly played a part in the way I pick a guitar string, but I think that it may have some influence maybe like a, a feeling or a cover color or something that, that just like oh yeah that kind of reminds me of you know when this guy was playing classical guitar in the hallways of the uh, Cornish Institute of Allied Arts I for example I mean I don't know but it's I think the more as a musician you know broadens their horizons I think it's better especially if you get stagnant yes and you feel you're not going anywhere as a writer it's it's good to get uh, outside influences and explore. Totally. I actually, I totally agree. I, I want to actually clarify. I a hundred percent think that musicians, especially young musicians should try to absorb as much as possible. But the, uh, I guess the, for me, the thing that was also important was not to like, don't waste time with things that, uh, Say you absolutely can't stand something, and but it would take you five hours a day to get good at it um, for the next year. Would those five hours a day be better spent on something else 
that you'd be more passionate about. That's a, it's, it's more about asking that question. Once you've been exposed to more things, actually making the decision to focus on certain things, I think that's also positive because the, I feel like it helps people develop the particular skills and um, the particular skill set and the, those particular things that they're really going to build their style or their sound off of, as opposed to, you know, just knowing a little bit about a million different things. I think at some point it does become good to focus in, hone in on those things that you're the most passionate about and really level them up. Getting back to just being an individual and knowing you know, how, how you play your guitar or your instrument, you know how it's going to sound and believing in that, you know, I mean, these days, you know, a kid can go on the internet and he can become an amazing guitar player just watching people instruct him on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> These kids are great at, at playing, you know, Ran Ran Randy Rhodes solos, Van Halen solos. And, and it's like, but, you know, it's like, well, that's cool. You can play really fast and you can play that outside. But, you know, can you get in a band with five guys, four guys and write music, original music and make a living out of it? You know, can you, it's, I think it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a different, that's a whole other skill set. Yeah. It's a different game these days. You know, when I grew up, there was no internet, there was no cell phones. <laughs> you know, we put our ears to the speakers literally and, and learned music and, you know, emulated it, copied it, whatever into our brains. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's actually why going to music school when there was no internet made the most sense of all. Where else would you be exposed to all that stuff? How would you do it? It was going to concerts, you know, going to see bands perform in different places. And then, you know, you, you got your musician friends, you know, you, you, ha you hang out with them and everybody shows you, you know, different things that they've learned and that, you know, so, you, mm -hmm. so everybody just kind of networks and, and uh, you know, and you just, just kept, keep listening. You know, there used to be uh, guitar player magazines that, would show uh, music written in tablature and you, you could learn that way too, but it was kind of sterile. You know, it's like, you got to listen to it and put the feel into it. And nowadays it's like already done for you. <laughs> it's easy to get a, you know, a kick-ass guitar sound. It's easy to find the, the most killer solo to shown to you on YouTube and the slice of the week. It's pretty amazing. I guess the, the potential for learning now is really amazing. Sounds to me like you were getting your music knowledge any possible way you could in those formative years. Like, like you just said, through school or through friends or through concerts or whatever, like just taking it all in, which I think still matters. Like even with the internet, I think the bigger challenge with the internet isn't having access to information, but it's deciding which information you're going to look at because there's so much of it that uh it's it actually becomes there's so much that you have to actually filter a lot of it out because so much of it is garbage some of it, so much of it is not well structured that's the tough part i think whereas i think before the internet the challenge was well where do you find the information in the first place because you have to actually go physically looking for it um, now you don't have to go physically looking for it, but you're assaulted by so much that you have to, you have to know what's good information and what's not. Oh yeah, certainly. I mean, 
and they track you, you know, these media giants, they, they track you and they start sending you advertisements about guitar music or guitar this and that, you know, and it's like, all of a sudden there's ads popping in and all of a sudden there's, you know, it's just given to you. So you don't have to produce any effort to do anything. It's just like, it's just laid out there for you. And then the next thing you know, they're serving it like, you know, like double helping servings at a restaurant. Here you go. We're going to give you something that's going to make it easier for you. There's another thing that's going to make it easier for you. You know, it's like, so yeah, you're right. You got to, you got to filter some of that stuff because it can, you know, drive you crazy. Can drive you crazy. And I've noticed that for a lot of people, it makes them freeze basically like because they don't know where to start. They get completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Too much, too much information is can stifle creativity because you don't know where to start. Too many options. Like, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Constraints really do help creativity. And so I think nowadays people need to basically impose restraints on themselves, whether it's, I'm only going to use 10 plugins, or I'm only going to use this amp sim or these two amp sims or going to challenge myself to only learning this thing or only keeping the song under X amount of time, whatever the constraint is, I think you have to impose constraints nowadays because otherwise you could just go off the deep end. Like I've seen so many people do. I know with engineers, for instance, ending up with 300 plugins on their computer and like 25 versions of the same EQ. It's like, why? And they spend more time worrying about which exact one to use as opposed to learning how to actually use it better. Just imposing that restraint as in, I'm only going to use this one and I'm going to use it to the best of my ability and really refine my skills and my ability to listen and use it. That takes discipline and it takes putting on the brakes and deciding what you're going to focus on using intentionality. Yeah, and that's great. You know, we're talking about it now, but when you're 16 years old, oh yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're saying he's going to find discipline? I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's tough. I mean, all I can do is uh, put the information out there. But, you know, when it comes down to it, it's down to every individual as to how they're going to go about it. But if anything, man, I feel like those years, those formative years, I mean, if there was ever a period of time where you're going to do too much stuff and can get away with it, that would be that would be when to do it because you don't have real life yet. Yep. Life gets a lot more complicated as you get older. So. Yeah, it is really important in those younger years to immerse yourself. And you know, a lot of people don't know what the what they want to do. You know, so it's like they get out of college and they still don't know what they want to do. Did you always know? I knew uh, in high school. You know, Van Halen had came out. I was a jock. I played baseball. You know, I played on the the junior high and high school baseball teams. But I also had a love for music and playing guitar. But my turning point was when I went to a Black Sabbath con- concert in Seattle. And it, I think it was the Never Say Die tour. And Van Halen was opening up for him. And I saw Eddie Van Halen come out on stage, kicking his legs and playing the On Fire, I think is the song, off the first album. And I saw David Lee Roth, you know, singing great showmanship and, and they just sounded so good. And that I just had an epiphany and I said, that's what I want to do. This is the path. Yeah. Did you ever question it? No, I quit baseball and I focused on guitar. <laughs> is it, I feel like, um, like, okay. So I 
can't personally understand what it's like to not have a direction. For me personally, and everyone I know who's done anything with music or you know really anything, uh, they typically just about always have not really considered it much of a choice. Like one day they figured out this is the thing for me and that's it. Never looked back basically like, and took all the risks in the world and uh, basically devoted their life to it with very little question. Yeah. I mean, a lot of young kids have their parents, you know, if they have their parental support, that really helps. They kind of always thought, you know, oh, being in a band, it's, it's not really a, a real career. It's not re- a real job, right? Just make sure you have something to fall back on, that kind of a thing. But I think once you know, you may not be totally committed or solidified in it at that age. I think that it's, it's always going to be in the, the back of your mind. And I think that's kind of what happened with me. You know, the whole uh, something to fall back on idea, because I remember hearing that all the time. Yeah, I know. And rationally speaking, it's probably the smartest thing. But what I also know is that the amount of effort it takes to make something happen in music is so gargantuan that you can't really do much else. You kind of have to go all in. So personally, I feel like the best way, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, the best way to have something to fall back on is to find something that works organically with what you want to do in music, whatever that might be, whether it means becoming a good recording engineer or being good enough at guitar to where if your band falls through, you get get hired by another band or whatever it is, figure whatever it is you're going to fall back on that it works symbiotically with your main goal. Otherwise you're kind of just dividing yourself down the middle and that's not, that's not good for either path you want to take. Yeah. I mean, I guess when I was 20 years old and we had done our first few gigs, got signed to a six record deal with EMI. I thought, well, I don't know. Am I going to go to some technical college now just in case? No, I, I wanted to rock. No, of course I not. wanted to rock, <laughs> you know, you know, we just believed in it and it's timing. You know, we, we were, it was a great time, you know, record companies had money. People were spending money on LPs and, you know, and then CDs came out, and, you know, so there were big budgets for everything. And it was, it was a great time, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's, you know, unfortunate and I'm very humbled by, you know, the success and everything that we've had. So, but that's, I never, I mean, I have other things that, that I, I probably could do, but I don't think that way. <laughs> I, I'm focused on what's next for Queensryche. I'm focused on what's, you know, how we can survive in this industry and keep, uh, producing music and, and, uh, touring, you know? So, um, but I think it's great for, for other people that maybe, you know, found out that they could, they're, they're great, uh, producers or engineers or whatever, you know, that's great too. Um, the tour that I'm on right now with Judas Priest, the guitar that's playing Glenn Tipton's, uh, place is, is Andy Sneap. He's a producer. Oh yeah. He's fantastic. So he, so so he's kind of reversed the whole process. He's a producer mm-hmm. now playing guitar. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. In his favorite band, which is 
Yeah, the, I I can't think of a cooler situation. That's super cool. Yeah, it do, doesn't usually work that way. That right. Yeah, that's that's totally totally an oddball situation. But I mean, he's he's phenomenal. So yeah, I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. You know what I think about what you just said? The six albums. There's all this advice out there about don't take record deals with a lot of albums on them. Like you know, all this advice about for local bands and unsigned bands to try to get like the most favorable contract ever, never signed for more than two albums, three at most, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you hear about all these mega successful bands like that signed the deal that in books it says never, never to sign. And I kind of feel like, I mean, don't do something stupid, but you kind of have to do what you have to do to get in at some point. I guarantee you that Slipknot did not sign a great deal right out the gate because that doesn't exist for unsigned bands most of the time like you're just not going to get an amazing deal right out the gate first and foremost the record companies are business you know and they're they're gonna make money off of you and they're gonna own your music so yeah you got to be smart about it you know you got there's percentages and all kinds of other arrangements that are in these contracts that you may want to question and and but, you know, it's like you flip what you said and then, you know, you know, these businesses are kind of disappearing or they're getting swallowed up by bigger businesses. They do have the money and it's like they can pick and choose who they want. So it's like yep. if bands had lots of income to form their own, you know, kind of a contract similar to a record contract. I mean, that would it usually doesn't exist. Usually musicians are pretty poor. <laughs> And so it's a long, hard road. Yeah, you you just got to be smart about it. That's kind of exactly it, is they could just sign somebody else. There's so many bands who want it, so few bands who have the financial means to handle it all on their own. And it's not just just money. It's also time and effort. Like someone's going to have to do all the work that a label's going to do. So, And I know some independent artists were very successful without a label and I but the thing that I know about them too is well they definitely have a team that does everything that a label would do or they themselves do it but the ones who have pulled it off are super unique personality types who it's not normal it's a total exception to the rule for some reason they just have a brain wiring that makes them cool with doing admin tasks for half the day and then music for the other half of the day but most people aren't wired that way. And most musicians are not wired that way. And so I feel like it's inviting disaster or just a limiting the potential of a project by trying to do it all on your own before you're ready. Now, again, I feel like if someone can pull it off, cool, obviously, but most people can. The advantages of record companies is, well, you got the financial support to record your albums. You don't have to come up with that. And then as far as the distribution, the pressing, all that stuff, you know, you don't have to do that. But they're just kind of in the know. A lot of this business is about who you know. And they know the right people that will help a band. But if you're independent on your own, you may not have those connections that the record company does. That's such a huge, important part. It's it's either or. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one thing if you're nine inch nails and you decide to go 
indie, which I don't know if they're signed now or not, but I remember when they went indie 15, 20 years ago or whatever it was, people were saying, see, that's the example. That's what you can do. It's like, well, sure. They came up through the major label system and were huge before they did that. Like, of course they can do it. I feel like the clout that comes with the with the label and the connections that come with the label, all that other stuff that you can't really put a you can't really put a financial figure on that stuff. That stuff counts for so much. It does. If you go looking for money, you might be able to find enough money to pay for stuff. Like if you like we all know those unsigned bands who got an investor. But what's interesting to me is I have never seen that work out. I've come across so many unsigned bands who had some super rich dude just fund everything. In lots of cases, pay more money than a record company would have. And I never see it work out. And I think that it's because of what you just said. It's the, that in the no part, like that counts for so much. It does. You know, as the industry gets more complicated, it's, you know, resources. It's like, I, I heard a bunch of you know record pressing plants closed down, <laughs> so it's like now it's all bottleneck to try and get your albums you know done in time for the release you know of your album. Let's face it, there's lots of challenges out there right now. So I think you know being in a band, you just you just got to be smart about it. You got to know where your bottom line is, and you just got to make it work. Yeah, I did hear about it with the record plants and. I've heard that the wait in some cases is like nine months from delivery. That's nuts. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you delay your release because you can't get records pressed? Sometimes it comes down to that. Yeah. You know, I think that comes down to each individual situation, case by case basis. But for me, the question is, well, who's the pressing plant going to prioritize? Are they going to prioritize a label that gives them most of their business or are they going to prioritize you know individual independent artists that falls under the topic of who you know yeah exactly that's it. exactly exactly it and i think basically you can go down a list of the things that really make a difference like getting on tours whatever getting on tours <laughs> all the way to getting your record pressed all that it really does come down to the person or the people who say yay or nay having a good opinion of you or your project at that point in time and being open to it at the same time so it's who you know and what they think of you yeah and, and now we're in we're in situations where it's it's not for some band it's not even worth to you know record a new album they're just gonna tour on their past and you know make a living that way you know, so it's things are happening. You know, there's rumors that CDs are going to be gone within a couple of years. You know, it's a, and you got to, you got to think about those things. You got to be a good touring band, you know, and, and uh, have a good following. That's kind of what it's coming down to. Just out of curiosity, do you ever feel pressure to do what you just said? Just survive off of the past, not make new stuff. I mean, 16 albums, like obviously. You're not choosing that path. Do you ever feel pressure to do that? Not yet. I mean, we're in a situation, yes, we could live off of our past. You totally could. That's why I'm asking. And make a living doing that. But that's not what we choose to do. We're 
a current band. We like to think of ourselves as a current band. We put out new music. We put out new records. You know, we're we're, we're doing it. You know, like we did back in the you know '90s and '80s. So that's the challenge, and that's that's the fun of it. You know, it's like we're you know keeping the legacy going, and as long as the fans want more Queensrÿche music, we're going to keep bringing it. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a powerful thing to know you could do that and then not decide to phone it in. Um, says a lot because you know some people do do that. Mm-hmm. Because why not, I guess, if it's that or nothing. Do you still feel about it the same way as you did? By it, I mean writing music, touring, the whole, everything that goes into doing the band. Do you still feel about it the same way you did, say, in the 80s or 90s? I do, and, you know, I'm old school. When I say we're going to record a new album, in my vision, I'm envisioning an LP, (laughs) You know, and a, a body of work that is going to be in a proper sequential order that should be listened to from the beginning to the end, and the listener should be immersed in what we're doing. That's the way I think of it, and and I know that's old school, but that's how at least I used to listen to music. I I would immerse myself in that artist's creation, and I would listen to the whole album or the whole CD. We don't think about just recording singles. I mean, a lot of bands do that now and then putting that single on YouTube. I think we're, you know, we're old school. We do it the way we do have been doing it for years and we're probably going to keep doing it that way. And it seems like your fans love that. So it works. Mm -hmm. It works for us. Well, I think it's a good place to uh, end the episode, but I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. It's been a, pleasure talking to you and uh you know love love your music have since uh forever ago so appreciate you doing this yeah well thank you very much and that and then that's interesting how you said in the beginning you were the uh the local band at one of the uh on one of the promised land uh shows that's cool <laughs> yeah not really the kind of tour where you would see local bands either no that that was just that tour that we did that you know that that was uh I run into a lot of people. Goes, yeah, we opened up for you. I go, Ooh, what band are you in? <laughs> it was 1994, mm-hmm. I think. No, five. 95. Five. Okay, and I mean, this was at uh, in Atlanta, so it was Lakewood Amphitheater back then. Now it's High Five Buys, but uh, yeah, Lakewood Amphitheater and local bands don't play shows like that generally. So it was uh, it was intimidating as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, it was really, really cool. Well, all right. This was good. Um, yeah, I appreciate the uh, support and the chance to, to be uh, here to talk to you. It's really important that people support live music. I think it's safe now. You know, I see people out there not wearing masks. And, and it's, uh, I think people are wanting to come out because they're starved for entertainment. So it's great that you have a platform where you can you know, influence that. So that's really cool. Doing what I can. I feel like uh, if by chance anyone took it for granted, the whole music thing, we all got a taste of what it's like when it gets taken away. It's pretty unanimous that we don't want it taken away. So I think everyone kind of needs to do their part to uh, keep it going strong. And I do know that a lot of people were taking it for granted. I've actually had a lot of people on the podcast say that. So the whole pandemic experience really, uh, I don't know, 
help make people understand what matters. Or something like that. Something like that. At least in regards to music. Yes. Through everything else, who the hell knows? It's crazy. But uh, yeah, as far as music, I think it really did solidify that people do want it in their lives. They are willing to go to shows. Like bands do matter. Um, so I think that there's a lot of negatives, but that is uh, one of the positives. That's right. Cool, man. Well, have a great rest of your tour. And, right on. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye.